Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History. This episode will be a little different. It's a crossover episode from another great history podcast named History Daily. Every weekday, History Daily releases new episodes that cover a broad range of historical topics. Everything from famous battles to fashion firsts, great discoveries to notorious criminals. They're a great way to explore a new era or event, and at less than 20 minutes a pop, you can squeeze them in practically any time. In this crossover episode, you're going to hear two History Daily episodes. The first relates to the death of Queen Elizabeth I of England and all the various political manoeuvrings which consumed her court at the end of her reign. The second examines the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg, one of the most famous and consequential engagements of the American Civil War. So sit back and enjoy these great episodes from History Daily. And remember, there's five new episodes a week. If that doesn't satisfy your history cravings, I don't know what will. It's the early hours of the morning on March 24th, 1603. An English nobleman gallops through the dark streets of London, his spurs digging into his horse's flanks. Perspiration glistens on the steed's muscular body, but the nobleman doesn't dare slow down. His future, and the future of England, depends on it. The turrets of Richmond Palace loom up ahead, black against an inky blue sky. The nobleman approaches the gates and announces himself as Sir Robert Carey, one of Queen Elizabeth's closest advisors. The guard lets him through. Inside the palace, Carey rushes through candlelit corridors until he arrives outside the royal bedchamber. The queen's ladies-in-waiting huddle near the door, their cheeks streaked with tears. Seeing their grief-stricken faces, Carey realizes the reports he received are true. Queen Elizabeth I is dead. Carey knows her closest living relative and heir, James VI of Scotland, is 400 miles away in Edinburgh. Carrie also knows that the first person to bring James the news of Elizabeth's death will likely receive a considerable reward. So Carrie turns and hurries back the way he came. But just as he reaches the palace doors, Carrie finds himself surrounded by 20 noblemen, all members of the Queen's Privy Council, and looking at Carrie with venomous disdain. Among them is the Queen's foremost advisor, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. Cecil knows where Carrie is headed, and he has no intention of letting him arrive. In the weeks running up to the Queen's death, Cecil and the Privy Council created a detailed plan for the peaceful transfer of power from one monarch to the next. Their plan did not involve an opportunist like Robert Carey riding out on his own to curry favor with the new king. So they trap Carey in the palace, where he will remain under the watchful eye of guards. For now, Carey is stymied. His rival Cecil has gained the upper hand in the struggle that will unfold in the wake of Elizabeth's death, as competing nobles seek to preserve their status in the new court of King James. During her 45-year reign, 
Elizabeth I emerged as one of England's most successful monarchs, winning the people's affection by defeating foreign enemies and by preserving peace in a nation bitterly divided between Protestants and Catholics. But one major shortcoming of Elizabeth's reign will loom large at the time of her death, her failure to produce an heir. Without a clear line of succession, there's no knowing what the future holds for England or her people when Queen Elizabeth draws her final breath on March 24, 1603. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is March 24th, the death of Queen Elizabeth I. It's February 1559 in London, 44 years before the death of Queen Elizabeth I. On a cold winter's morning in the Palace of Westminster, members of Parliament have assembled to discuss a most pressing matter finding a husband for the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth I. Since Elizabeth's coronation last year, the 26-year-old's lack of an heir has become a cause of concern. Without a child to inherit the throne, the future of the realm is uncertain, and after years of political and religious turmoil in England, the last thing Parliament wants is more uncertainty. The troubles began some 25 years ago, when Elizabeth's father, King Henry VIII, made England not a Roman Catholic nation, but a Protestant one. Henry wanted a divorce from his first wife, but the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't allow it, so Henry split from Rome, divorced her, and remarried a woman named Anne Boleyn, who later gave birth to their daughter, Elizabeth. Henry VIII's actions sparked a period of religious upheaval known as the English Reformation. Soon, all the powerful positions within the church and government were filled by Protestants, but there were still plenty of Catholics in England who felt persecuted by these reforms. When Henry's daughter Elizabeth came to power in 1558, she tried to appease these Catholics by introducing a more moderate form of Protestantism. And to an extent, it worked. However, Elizabeth's peacekeeping efforts will all be for nothing if she dies without an heir. At present, the next in line to the crown is Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, the Queen of Scotland. Mary is a staunch Catholic. If she becomes queen, England will most likely erupt into civil war. Parliament's solution is to find Elizabeth a husband with whom she can produce an heir. This would cement the Protestant grip on the crown and preserve a line of succession for Elizabeth's so-called Tudor dynasty. So in February 1559, Parliament sends a delegation to petition Elizabeth to consider the question of marriage. The delegates arrive at Richmond Palace, where they kneel before the monarch. Elizabeth is clothed resplendently in a jewel-encrusted gown. Behind her snow-white makeup, the young queen smiles. She thanks the delegates for the visit, but politely declines their request. Elizabeth is fiercely independent and politically shrewd. She knows that if she were to marry, her husband would effectively rule through her, limiting her power. Furthermore, by selecting one suitor, she would likely arouse jealousy in others, thus opening up the possibility of rebellion. Elizabeth believes that to preserve national stability, she must remain unmarried. But it's not an easy decision. Elizabeth is beautiful and intelligent. She has no shortage of handsome suitors, some of whom she develops genuine feelings for. Elizabeth grows especially fond of one nobleman, 
Lord Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Marrying Dudley would bring her great joy, but Elizabeth is not willing to jeopardize the security of the realm for the sake of her own happiness. For the men in Parliament, the notion that Elizabeth should reign without a husband is unthinkable. It contravenes their deep-rooted ideas about the primary role of women as childbearers and caregivers. So short of giving birth to a child, many in Parliament want Elizabeth to at least name an heir. In response, the Queen angrily replies that at this present it is not convenient to name a successor, nor never shall be without some peril unto you and certain danger unto me. Elizabeth is shrewd. She knows that by appointing an heir, she opens herself up to plots of insurrection, as factions might rally around her successor and oust her from power. So instead, she remains silent, ruling as a powerful single woman in a world dominated by men. But it will soon become clear that the most imminent threat to Elizabeth's power does not come from a man, but a woman, her own cousin, and next in line to the throne, Mary, Queen of Scots. It's February 1st, 1587. Queen Elizabeth I, age 53, sits in a drawing room in Richmond Palace. The Queen's mood is solemn. She has recently learned that a group of Catholic noblemen have been conspiring to have her killed and install her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, on the English throne. Elizabeth hoped that Mary no longer posed a threat to her power. Decades back, following a Protestant revolt in Scotland, the Catholic Mary was forced to abdicate the Scottish throne and flee to England. After she arrived on English shores, Elizabeth had her arrested to neutralize any threat of Mary plotting against her. But while in captivity, Mary became a hero to many English Catholics. In their eyes, Mary is the rightful queen of England. Elizabeth is a Protestant heretic. Soon, whispers of Catholic plots against Elizabeth began to swirl. Elizabeth dismissed most of them, but eventually her spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham, showed Elizabeth damning letters written by Mary to her Catholic conspirators. In these letters, Mary consented to the Queen's assassination. After reading Mary's treasonous words, Elizabeth was quick to execute the other conspirators, but she's been reluctant to sign Mary's death warrant. Mary is, after all, family. Additionally, Elizabeth fears that killing Mary will only lead to bigger problems, a retaliation from Catholic nations in Europe. But her advisors, including Francis Walsingham, encourage her relentlessly to rid the country of the troublesome Scot. So finally, the Queen signs the order. Seven days later, on February 8th, Mary, Queen of Scots, is executed. Once the axe has fallen, the executioner grabs her severed head, holds it aloft, and shouts, God save Queen Elizabeth. With her greatest rival dispatched, Elizabeth's power seems undisputed and unimpeachable. But more trouble is coming to England. Mary's execution will soon incite a war. It's August 9, 1588. In the town of Tilbury, on the south coast of England, thousands of troops have assembled to meet an invading army. The 54-year-old Queen Elizabeth parades before her soldiers on horseback, her armor gleaming. And though she appears confident and eager to meet the challenge before her, the Queen harbors nervous thoughts. The execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, outraged the Catholic King of Spain, Francis II. Francis believes Mary is a martyr who was wrongfully executed by Protestant criminals. Shortly after Mary's death, Francis began plotting to oust Elizabeth and restore Catholicism to England. 
So in May 1588, he sent a fleet of 130 warships to invade. But before this Spanish armada reached English shores, it was met by England's navy. A ferocious sea battle commenced, and just yesterday, at the Battle of Graveline, a fortuitous wind scattered the Spanish ships, and the English forces emerged victorious. The English then fell back to defend their coast from the expected ground invasion. Now Queen Elizabeth rides before her troops, her red hair blazing beneath her helmet. She cries out, I am come amongst you not for my recreation, but for being resolved in the midst and heat of battle to lay down my life for my God, my kingdom, and my people. Her words are met with the rattle of swords and the cries of God save the queen. Elizabeth waits for the noise to die down. Then she continues, her voice resonant with conviction. I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. An even louder roar goes up. Elizabeth turns to face the horizon, where the black sails of her enemy's ships threaten to appear at any moment. But no such invasion comes. Elizabeth and her generals soon learn that the Spanish fleet has limped back to Spain, and England celebrates a great victory over its Catholic enemies. For Elizabeth, the news of the defeat of the Spanish Armada makes for great propaganda. The gale that scattered the Spanish ships is dubbed the Protestant Wind and is held as proof that God is on the Protestant side. Elizabeth is carried through the crowded streets of London on a golden litter, a victory procession rivaling her own coronation in terms of splendor and extravagance. The people of England celebrate her as an almost immortal figure, a mythical virgin queen. And the years following the Armada's defeat will be remembered as a golden age for Elizabeth's reign and for England. The theater and the arts will flourish, with figures such as Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare emerging as the period's leading literary lights. In 1596, the poet Edmund Spencer writes The Fairy Queen, an epic poem paying homage to Elizabeth. Spencer refers to her as Gloriana, an eternally youthful monarch whose beauty and wisdom are unparalleled. But in truth, by the dawn of the 1600s, Elizabeth's beauty has faded. Her hair has almost entirely fallen out. Her teeth are black and rotten from a lifelong sugar habit. She cakes her face with white makeup, which cracks around the corners of her mouth and eyes. Despite the patriotic propaganda, Elizabeth is not immortal, and as she approaches 70, her health is in rapid decline. She has reigned for over 40 years, bringing peace and stability to a nation beset with religious discord. Many in England cannot envision a world in which Elizabeth is not their queen. And yet there are some who are doing exactly that. The queen's closest advisors realize that her reign will soon be over. Their attention turns to the question of succession. Members of the Privy Council, men like Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, and Sir Robert Carey, Earl of Monmouth, begin angling to secure positions of power so as not to lose influence when Elizabeth passes. Cecil begins writing secretive letters to Elizabeth's closest living relative, James VI of Scotland, son of her old enemy, Mary Queen of Scots. Cecil informs James of Elizabeth's condition, effectively lining him up to succeed the ailing queen. But no decisive action can be taken until the queen actually names her successor. And by March 1603, this is looking increasingly unlikely. Elizabeth's condition has worsened. Her throat is now swollen, and she is unable to speak. In her final days, Cecil, Carrie, and her other advisors crowd around her sickbed, their eyes red from weeping, their legs stiff from kneeling, praying for the queen to speak. But she never does. 
With time running out, Cecil makes a move. He suggests James VI as a potential heir to the throne. In response, Queen Elizabeth manages to raise a withered hand in a gesture of approval. Soon, Elizabeth will die childless, but with her successor named, her death will trigger a scramble between her former advisors, all jockeying to secure positions of power in the court of the new king. It's early morning on March 24, 1603. Sir Robert Carey prowls the dark corridors of Richmond Palace, searching for an unguarded exit. Hours ago, Queen Elizabeth I drew her final breath. After her death, Carey intended to ride to Scotland to inform James of his succession, thus currying favor with the monarch and guaranteeing himself a position of power. But his plan was derailed. Carey's rival, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, found out about his scheme and forbade him from leaving the palace. Cecil is the senior noble, with executive authority over the royal guards. If Carey wants to escape the confounds of the palace, he will have to do so by stealth. But lucky for Carey, a familial connection comes in handy. His elder brother, Henry, the first baron of Hunsdon, is also in the palace. Henry stands to gain from his brother securing favor with James, and Henry holds more authority than his younger brother. So he escorts Carey to the palace gates and orders the guards to let him through. On his way out of Richmond Palace, Carey passes by a low window. A woman leans out. It's Carey's sister, Lady Philadelphia Scrope. As Carey rides by, Philadelphia throws him something, a ring, pried from the dead finger of Elizabeth I moments before. This ring will prove to James VI that the queen is dead and that the crown now belongs to him. With the ring in hand, Carey gallops into the night, bound for Scotland. By the time Cecil and the other lords realize he's gone, it's too late. Carey completes the 400-mile journey in a remarkable three days. He reaches Edinburgh in the dead of night. Exhausted and disheveled, Carey staggers into Holyrood Palace and kneels before James, presenting him with Elizabeth's ring and addressing him for the first time ever as King James I of England. Carey's efforts are duly rewarded. The king offers him exactly what Carey wanted, a prestigious position in the new court. James's succession marks the end of the Tudor dynasty and the beginning of the Stuart period, one of the most turbulent in British history. Following Elizabeth's death, England will be plunged into a chaotic era, one characterized by gunpowder plots, civil wars, and great plagues, leaving many in the country longing for the strong, wise leadership of Queen Elizabeth I, which ended with her death on March 24th, 1603. Next on History Daily, March 25th, 1807, the British Parliament abolishes the slave trade in the British West Indies. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Derek Barons. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship, Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Hello, everybody. This is an ad. An ad for Grey History. While you're waiting for the next regular episode to air, why not support the show on Patreon and help do your bit to keep Grey History running? 
There are five full-length bonus episodes for you to sink your teeth into, covering everything from mutinies to ministries, the works of famous scientists to the deeds of Corsican revolutionaries. In addition to this, you'll gain access to an ad-free feed, so no mid-episode interruptions like this one, as well as access to hours of mini-bonus episodes called Episode Extras, full of interesting facts, digressions and deleted scenes. Some Patreons also get early access to new content, and for those that do, the latest joint episode with the Russian Rulers History Podcast is waiting for you right now. And episode 45, First Republic, Then Dictatorship, will be available to those with early access shortly. So don't miss tons of exclusive content, and help keep grey history running. For as little as $2 per regular episode, you can help ensure that grey history is waiting for you tomorrow. Now, let's get back to History Daily with this special on the Battle of Gettysburg. It's May 1863 at the Chancellor House in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, two years into the American Civil War. 14-year-old Sue Chancellor crouches in her bedroom as the sound of Confederate cannons echo outside. Days ago, her home was taken over by Union General Joseph Hooker. Hooker's been using Sue's house as his headquarters and a military hospital during this days-long engagement that will come to be known as the Battle of Chancellorville. And today, the rebels have Sue's house surrounded. Sue hears a pounding on the door and a Union soldier calling after her. Sue darts across the room and throws the door open. The soldier tells Sue that she needs to get to the cellar for safety. The cannon fire grows louder as Sue rushes down a hallway toward the stairs. Sue stumbles as a Confederate strike hits close enough to shake the walls of the house. Sue runs faster, desperate to reach the cellar. She barrels down the stairs to the first floor, and there she hears the groans of wounded men as she runs to the steps that lead down to the basement. Sue closes the door behind her, and inside she sees her mother and sister already huddled together in the dark, their faces illuminated by the glow of a burning candle. She breathes a sigh of relief. As she rushes to her mother, she prays the cellar will be enough to protect them. But then, the house shudders from a direct hit, and Sue hears shouting from above. Soon, a Union soldier opens the cellar door. He says they have to get out, and now... Sue bounds up the steps, followed by her mother and sister. Upstairs, Sue and her family move through the choking smoke and push outside where Union soldiers wait to take them to safety. As the troops lead Sue and her family off, she looks back and sees her home burning to the ground. Sue is grateful to these soldiers who are helping her escape, but they fight for the Union, and the Union stole her house. Now it's been destroyed, and Sue hopes the Union's chances at victory will be destroyed with it. At the outset of the Battle of Chancellorville, Union General Joseph Hooker was confident he would quickly get the best of the rebels. His army outnumbered them almost two to one. Still, days later, the battle is still raging, and Hooker is on his heels. His makeshift headquarters is destroyed, and soon Robert E. Lee's Confederate army will have him and his men on the run. The improbable Southern victory at Chancellorville emboldens General Lee. Following the battle, Lee will decide to take the fight to the Union on their own soil. 
Lee's decision will prove to be a turning point in the Civil War, and it will set off the deadliest fight of the conflict, the Battle of Gettysburg, which begins on this day, July 1st, 1863. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is July 1st, 1863. The Battle of Gettysburg begins. It's May 14th, 1863, at Confederate President Jefferson Davis's office in Richmond, Virginia. General Robert E. Lee steps into the room and greets Davis warmly and confidently. Lee feels more assured in himself and his army than he ever has during the war, and he's here to win Davis over to an ambitious plan he's been putting together. Lee's recent victory at the Battle of Chancellorville has convinced him that the time is right for his Army of Northern Virginia to invade Union territory. Lee understands that his strategy could leave Southern strongholds vulnerable, but he thinks gaining ground in the North is worth the risk, and now he has to get Davis to agree with him. Lee takes a seat across from the Confederate president and makes his case. Lee is known as a keen military strategist, but he's also skilled at talking to politicians. To win Davis over, Lee focuses on a goal that Davis is desperate to achieve. Lee says a victory on northern soil will demonstrate to President Abraham Lincoln that major Union cities like Washington, Philadelphia, and New York are not safe. Lee says the threat of southern armies marching on the north's political, economic, and cultural centers would convince Lincoln to seek peace with the Confederacy and perhaps end the war. This is exactly what Davis wants. But the Confederate president is quick to remind General Lee that they've been down this road before. He brings up Lee's crushing defeat at Antietam, the only Civil War battle Lee waged in the North. Still, Lee doesn't back down. He argues that this time will be different, saying his soldiers are more battle-tested, and he uses the events at Chancellorville to prove that even when outnumbered, the South has the superior army. Then Lee tells Davis that if they truly want to end the war, They have to make Northerners feel like the battle is happening in their own backyard. Lee's confidence is enough to convince Davis, who gives the general his blessing to lead the charge north. Soon, Lee leaves Richmond and hurries back to Fredericksburg, Virginia, where his troops are gathered. As Lee surveys his men, he feels like a proud father. The Confederates lack the Union Army's resources, often marching barefoot and without food. But that makes Lee love them even more. The general sees them as brave, ferocious fighters, while he views the Union Army as a pampered force led by feeble generals. But as confident as Lee is in his men, he's not interested in waging another battle against an army twice as large as his, like he did at Chancellorville. So Lee bides his time for a few weeks and takes on thousands of new recruits who are eager to join the fight. By June of 1863, Lee has amassed an army of close to 75,000 soldiers, He devises a strategy to cross the Potomac into Maryland and then move into southern Pennsylvania. Lee believes fighting in the Keystone State puts him close enough to several major northern cities to pose a significant threat 
and hopefully bring President Lincoln and the Union to heel. Lee is ready to march, but before he gives his orders, he pictures the upcoming campaign in his head. Lee prides himself on outthinking his enemy, and he wants to keep the North guessing at his plans for as long as he can. So Lee chooses a path through Virginia that won't immediately indicate that he's bound for Union territory. Early in the morning on June 3, 1863, General Lee leads the march from Fredericksburg under the cover of darkness. And later that day, when Union General Joseph Hooker, head of the Army of the Potomac, receives word that Lee is on the move, he panics. Hooker is still reeling from his defeat at Chancellorville, and he has no desire to engage Lee again so soon after their last clash. But Hooker doesn't have a choice in the matter. He receives a message from President Abraham Lincoln stating that the Army of the Potomac's priority is to defeat Lee, but first, Hooker must find him. Over the next few weeks, Hooker pursues Lee through Virginia, but he has no idea where the Confederate Army is going. In late June, General Lee will finally make his plans known when he orders his troops into Pennsylvania to launch an attack. It's June 26, 1863, on a road in southern Pennsylvania. A young Confederate soldier marches with his regiment. He chews on a piece of fresh bread that a Dutch woman gave him as he passed her house. As he walks with his fellow soldiers, he gazes up at the beautiful cherry trees that shade the road. The food and scenery make him feel like he's on a leisurely stroll, not advancing into enemy territory. The Confederate army has been marching for weeks. Under orders from General Robert E. Lee, the rebels made their way out of Virginia, through Maryland, and into southern Pennsylvania. And all the while, Lee managed to keep his plans hidden from the Union. Today, these Confederate soldiers entered Pennsylvania undetected but they're about to come face to face with the enemy. As the young Confederate marches, chewing on his bread, he hears something in the distance. The young soldier stops his marching. He and the other men hear drumming, and then the sound of a camp not far off. Right away, they send a scouting party ahead to evaluate. The scouts return with good news. The camp houses only a few hundred Pennsylvania militiamen. It's not a major Union force, and it's ripe for an ambush. The young Confederate soldier moves quickly down the road. When the camp is within striking distance, he lets out the famed rebel yell. Both sides exchange fire, but the Pennsylvania militiamen are clearly outnumbered, so they make a run for it. The Confederates pursue them for miles and eventually take over 100 prisoners. But some of the militiamen get away, and they take news of the Confederate invasion with them. Later that night, word of the Confederate push into Pennsylvania reaches Union General Joseph Hooker in Maryland. But Hooker doesn't order a march toward the enemy. He turns north and tries to create some distance between him and the rebels. Hooker fears he isn't ready to do battle with Robert E. Lee. He remembers all too well how Lee defeated him at Chancellorville, even though Hooker had him greatly outnumbered. Now, Lee has even more men in his immediate command than Hooker does, and Hooker is desperate to stall for time enough for reinforcements to arrive. In hopes of bolstering his army, Hooker sends a telegraph message to President Lincoln, asking for an additional 10,000 troops. But the president denies the request, seeing it as a sign that Hooker is afraid to challenge the Army of Northern Virginia. Lincoln fears that General Hooker is not up to the task. On the night of June 27th, Lincoln calls an emergency meeting with his Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton. 
The president says he's done with generals like Hooker, who seem to be awed by the military prowess of Robert E. Lee. And after a lengthy discussion, Lincoln and Stanton decide to remove Hooker from command of the Army of the Potomac. They replace him with Major General George Meade. Lincoln likes Meade because he expresses no fear or wonderment regarding Lee's abilities. Also, Meade is a Pennsylvania man, and Lincoln says he hopes Meade will fight well on his own dunghill. Before dawn, on June 28, 1863, Major General George Meade wakes up in his tent in Maryland to find a courier standing over him. Meade serves under General Hooker in the Army of the Potomac, so he assumes the courier is delivering Hooker's early morning instructions. But as Meade listens to what the courier has to say, he learns that President Lincoln has ordered him to replace his commanding officer. Hearing the news, Meade is suddenly wide awake. He gets dressed and steps outside, takes in the air, and ponders Lincoln's decision. In the early rays of dawn, Meade cuts an imposing figure. He's tall, with a graying beard, and age cracks his face. Meade's physical attributes and his quick temper have led his officers to nickname him the Old Snapping Turtle. But Lincoln's message causes Meade to evaluate himself as a leader. Meade respects honesty and dependability, and he isn't afraid of anyone, certainly not Robert E. Lee. Meade is certain that those are the reasons Lincoln has called on him to face down the invading rebels. So later that day, Meade assumes control of the Army of the Potomac. But Meade has no intention of chasing Lee. Instead, he instructs his generals to fan out across southern Pennsylvania, where he'll soon join them. Then he orders them to prepare to throw everything they have at the enemy. Soon, General Meade's strategy will bring the Union and Confederate armies face-to-face in Pennsylvania, where a surprise attack will spark the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg. It's almost 7.30 a.m. on July 1st, 1863, on a road outside Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Confederate General Henry Heath leads over 7,000 troops towards the town. Heath is alert, but he isn't overly cautious. General Robert E. Lee has laid out plans to launch his battle against Union forces from Cashtown, located about eight miles northwest of Gettysburg. Heath's men are in desperate need of supplies, especially shoes, to prepare for the battle. So Heath is leading them into Gettysburg in hopes of finding what they need there. Heath's understanding is that the only Union soldiers in the area are a small number of ragtag militiamen. But as Heath approaches Gettysburg, he and his troops spot Union cavalry riding fast to meet them. Soon the Confederates are under fire. Heath and his men scramble to fire back. This is no small militia coming his way. It's a Union cavalry division of close to 3,000 men. Heath orders his men to fall back and take up fighting positions. But even though the Union Army is outnumbered, they've caught the Confederates by surprise and managed to stand their ground. Then at 10.15 a.m., Union General John Reynolds arrives with over 13,000 reinforcements. But within 15 minutes of arriving at the battlefield, Reynolds takes a bullet to the head. With his death, the Northern soldiers are in disarray. The situation gets worse when Robert E. Lee and his troops arrive from Cashtown, swinging the balance of power and giving the Confederates superior numbers. Lee's men enable the Confederates to push the Union lines back, and at 4.30 p.m., the Northern Army retreats through Gettysburg. By the end of the first day of fighting, Lee believes he's on the brink of another Confederate victory. But late that night, 
Union General George Meade arrives. Meade refuses to retreat any further. He sends out calls for roughly 90,000 more men to join the fight at Gettysburg. And over the following two days, the growing Northern Army beats the Confederacy back and eventually sends Robert E. Lee and his men marching home to Virginia in defeat. But in the course of the battle, the two armies have suffered monumental losses. Over 50,000 men are dead, wounded, or missing, the largest number of American casualties from a single battle in history. Some historians will argue that Lee's overconfidence led to his defeat at Gettysburg. Others will credit Meade and his generals for refusing to give up the fight, even when it looked like the North would lose. But regardless of the reasons for the battle's outcome, the Union victory shatters Robert E. Lee's reputation as being invincible. And four and a half months later, President Lincoln uses the victory in his Gettysburg Address to serve as a rallying cry for the Union Army and Northern cause. The South abandons Lee's strategy and will not again fight on Northern soil. The Civil War will rage on for another two years, and thousands more will lose their lives. But the path towards the eventual victory for the Union was set in motion when the Battle of Gettysburg began on July 1st, 1863. Next on History Daily, July 4th, 1838, the Husker pit mine in Northern England floods, drowning 26 children and leading to significant changes in child labor laws. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Michael Federico. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Thank you for listening to this special crossover episode with History Daily. You can find History Daily on all major podcast apps, and don't forget that there is a new episode waiting for you every weekday. Speaking of new episodes, there are five episodes, yes, five bonus episodes waiting for Patreon supporters of Grey History right now. Support the show and gain access to hours of exclusive content and help keep Grey History on the air as you do so. Simply Google Grey History Patreon or look for the Patreon button in the show notes or on the website. The show needs your help and for as little as half a cup of coffee, you can help be the change that you want to see and spread the message that history isn't black and white. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a great day.